Welcome to Literary Hangover. I'm Matt Wick. With me, as always, is Grace Jackson and Alex Guns. Heyo. Today is a very exciting day. One of the more uh, British authors we're doing, we're going to go back to the other side of the pond uh, and back in time a little bit uh, and do John Milton, poet known best for Paradise Lost. Also for the uh, sort of work pamphlet we're uh, reading today, Areopagitica. Interesting guy. I'm curious to see what your guys' uh, sort of like a history with Milton is. I'll say mine is first, uh, most recently that we're doing this episode because uh, Milton's Paradise Lost was read by William Byrd II. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I need to like actually get in there and, and understand why like, this guy's reading Milton. Back in college, Milton was interesting to me because I basically had heard about the William Empson hypothesis that Satan is the good guy in Paradise Lost. And that was appealing to me uh, back in college. So that was just the reading that I completely adopted uh, without ever really reading the full poem. Let's be completely honest. Um, just like the first parts that are pretty badass. And um, and I would tell people like that, oh, yeah, you know, Paradise Lost is about how Satan's a good guy. That's a little bit simplistic, it turns out. But uh, the reason for getting into Paradise Lost to me is the politics. And that's why we're doing it here. I'm going to start with a selection from a T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot has a couple of lectures on Milton. He's a poet of the wasteland and um, uh I think inspired cats, the musical uh, with his poetry. Come on, man. Give him. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. That's I mean, rough. he did it. So he gets it forever, but so many good. There's four quartets. Oh, such a lovely poem. Proof Rock. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Proof Rock is good. Yeah. too. About a toxic um, male. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, on, a, on a nice guy. Um, uh, there is, uh, here's a, it's funny. Um, T.S. Eliot really doesn't like Milton, though. Uh, the first lecture starts off with like, you know, Milton is really like the thing about him is unlikable. And, uh, you know, it's the thing that's really unlikable about him is the blindness. And it's like, OK. <laughs> <T.S>. <laughs> uh, and he really means like his visual imagination isn't that good or whatever because uh, he's blind. Uh, but the second lecture is interesting. It starts off. Uh, it has this in it. There is one prejudice against Milton apparent on almost every page of uh, ja- Johnson's life of Milton, Samuel Johnson, uh, uh, 1750s uh, biography of Milton, which I imagine still general. We, however, with a longer historical perspective, are in a better position than was Johnson to recognize it and to make allowance for it. This is a prejudice which I share myself, an antipathy towards Milton the man. Of this in itself, I have nothing further to say. All that is necessary is to record one's awareness of it. I, I do like that. It's funny. Um, but this prejudice is often involved with another more obscure. Uh, and I do not think that Johnson had disengaged the two in his own mind. The fact is simply that the civil war of the 17th century, in which Milton is a symbolic figure, has never been concluded. The civil war is not ended. I question whether any serious civil war ever does end. Throughout that period, English society was so convulsed and divided that the effects are still felt. Pause there. Uh, is that like, I mean, obviously we know that the legacy of the civil war in America here is, <laughs> uh, shows up in voting records, right? Like that, like that shit lives on. Is there still that sense about the English civil war grace in England? Uh, not in any mainstream discourse that I'm aware of, but listening mm-hmm. to that. And having lived through the past three years, I can sort of 
find some sense in that, in that I think one of the great kind of myths of English history and one of the things that we, we tell ourselves as British people all the time is that the reason we have never had like, well, first of all, we say we've never had like a violent revolution. We never uh, went through the same things that other countries did in the 20th century or even the 19th or 18th centuries. But I've, I've heard that myth because I, I was listening to Russell Brand and he had a BBC guy on and he's like, could we ever, Russell's doing this, like, could we ever do a revolution thing, right? This is like 2008. Right. And the guy's like, yo, we don't do that here. And then like later in the show, people like said like, well, what about the whole like, you know, Cromwell business and that stuff? And then yeah. they had like a, and, and it seemed like it just kind of got memory hold. It's amazing. We have this vision of English political history as evolving very kind of peacefully and ponderously over the centuries. And somehow in that the civil war has been written out and I didn't even have to study the civil war. I think in high school history, Mm. for example, Um, I first encountered it through Milton when I went to university and studied English. So it's, it's kind of incredible how little of our current political imagination is shaped by memories or knowledge of the civil war. Um, But the idea that Eliot says about, you know, the civil war not ending, I think in a way, um, I don't know. I feel like today there is a lot of baggage that we're still picking through, um, whether that's more to do with empire, though, which is obviously a later development. I'm not sure. But there's definitely something in that. Yeah. I mean, I I think think that's... Go ahead, Alex. I think it's interesting that I wonder if, like, people's, like, modern people's, like, way out, including T.S. Eliot, who, even though he's quite the religious person, can kind of, like, relegate the English Civil War to some interseen Protestant religious conflict and be like, well, we're past all that. So that doesn't really affect us in a real way like that, like having that kind of religious Christian religious enthusiasm was a bit of temporary mania that we've like that fever has broken. So we could never be susceptible to that kind of thing as if, you know, national politics, personal politics and religion aren't, you know, inextricably intertwined then and now in like different ways basically yeah and we'll get into that um yeah like that the significance of that intertwining um and that's the thing about the english civil war it's like this is where i get conspiratorial again and how like george orwell's democratic socialism was worked from history like there's so much radical like ideation going on in this period of time because you see the end of censorship briefly and then the areopagitica's we see the uh, uh, like a return to licensing um but yeah, like it, it's a shame that that period of history isn't taught again, because I, th- I do think it's like is I mean, it's it's the it's the French Revolution before the French Revolution, really. Um, well, and just a little bit more orderly. Um, well, yeah, like, I think I think yeah. someone like Mike Duncan is like kind of smart with his like revolutions podcast to start with the English Revolution. I think that's like such an I mean, I think it's quite short because it's like early in his podcast. But if you want to talk about like revolutionary modernity if you're not going to the english revolution you're essentially not being serious i think yeah yeah i think so so uh here's a little bit more from uh elliot reading johnson's essay one is always aware that johnson was obstinately and passionately of another party no other english poet not wordsworth or shelley lived through or took sides in such momentous events as the milton of no other poet is it so difficult to consider the poetry simply as poetry without our theological or political dispositions, conscious or unconscious, inherited or acquired, making an unlawful entry. And the danger is all the greater because these emotions now take 
different vestures. It is now considered grotesque on political grounds to be of the party of King Charles. It is now, I believe, considered equally grotesque on moral grounds to be of the party of the Puritans. Uh, what do you think he means by that party of the Puritans? Like, I, I, like, is it like the witch hunting and that sort of like repression that is probably the, 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 the icon on the Puritans that you don't want to be associated with it now? I think in particular, and love to hear what you guys think, but if Elliot is writing in like the shadow of World War One and then the inter between World War Two, the idea of like imitating, imitating the eschaton, <laughs> bringing like utopia has been like dashed against the rocks in that period. And right. nothing is more aligned with that concept than the Puritan ideal of like, we need to like bring about like the perfect human system that can uh, wash away all like the bullshit of history. I think like, even though Elliot is like quite the conservative writer and thinker, he can't help but be influenced by other modernist writers to get rid of that notion that perfection or, or is even worth striving for basically, which I think is at that moment, Puritanism, Puritanism 101. Yeah. Um, so it continues. Uh, nevertheless, the, the passions are unquenched, and if we are not very wide awake, their smoke will obscure the glass through which we examine Milton's poetry. Something has been done, certainly, to persuade us that Milton was never really of any party, but disagreed with everyone. And then he goes into, like, C.S. Lewis and different people like that, which gives us, like, the modern thing. Like, the thing uh, Elliot says earlier, where it's hard to separate him from party, it wasn't for me, because, like, that, that context was entirely stripped away. And so it is just like this guy that wants to write about, you know, Adam and Eve and Satan and stuff. Right. And I honestly wasn't interested in reading it until I heard the Empson thing. It's like, oh, it's a little bit more than just a Bible story told in like super fancy language. Here's another quote uh, that is a little bit more succinct. This is from a Frederick Ingalls in the Northern Star, 18 December, 1847. Let us never forget Milton, the first defender of regicide. My thesis for this is that Milton needs to be understood kind of similar to how we understand uh, George Orwell. In fact, there's a lot of parallels, I think, between the two guys. But the most significant is that I think they they absolutely cannot be stripped from their political context. And that's probably a huge motivation for even works like, uh, you know, Paradise Lost, of course, um, Samson Agonistes, um, uh, am I pronouncing that agonists, agonists, all this stuff is so political and, uh, and, and we need to bring that back a little bit. The other thing just to, uh, I want to go into T.S. Eliot on Milton. He said, uh, Milton's unlikable because he's blind, right? But the thing that Eliot is concerned with is his influence on poets, basically saying like, if you, if you get into Milton, um, it's going to be impossible not to, uh, just do crude Miltonism. Uh, because he speaks in a way that nobody else speaks. It's like, it's a, a thing. And I think the thing is, that's like how Milton wanted it. Like, he's not trying to imitate people. He's trying to do the one thing, walk off, and then that's the end of the show. But so like, yeah, Keats, I guess, found that time wasn't right for another epic. It's like, it reminded me a little bit of uh, the NBA after Michael Jordan. And like, you know, we don't have the, the goat anymore. Uh, can we still play basketball? Let's get to Milton's uh, background uh, growing up. So he's born December 9th, 1608, Sagittarius gang um, in Bread Street in London to John and Sarah. Now, I have been through the John Milton passageway uh, down in central London there. I was uh, staggering around drunk with uh, 
one of my buddies uh, from the uh, internship program we were in London for. And we walked through, we went through this, there's like this little tunnel in this like giant, you know, bank type building. Uh, and we walked down it and we saw a little blue plaque. It's like John Milton passageway. Oh, that's interesting. It's there's absolutely, it's, it's like that part of London. That's all just giant towers now. So there's no, no sort of like, uh, you know, aesthetic of John Milton's actual life there, but it was uh, kind of interesting. King James Bible also authorized around that time, um, which is, I think like th- this is the interesting context of uh, you, you see the democratization of the word of uh, our Lord uh, in the Bible um, by the side of the printing print, uh, King James Bible in English type. I want to read a little bit from the, my favorite historian on this topic, uh, Christopher Hill on the classic uh, Milton and the English Revolution. The family into which John Milton was born in December 1608 was Protestant, bourgeois, and cultured. His father, John Milton the other, had been turned out of his Oxfordshire home by his Yemen father, who adhered to the old religion whilst his son became a Bible-reading Protestant. That's funny. His dad got in trouble for having a Bible in English, which is like, you know, we get busted for like having pot or something, and their generation's just like, you know, you're reading Leviticus in, uh, in English. <laughs> It's just a different type of getting high, basically. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, So uh, John the Elder came to London some 25 years before the poet was born and pursued a very successful career as a scrivener. Uh, You know, Bartleby the Scrivener is where I first came across that term. Uh, Here's what a scrivener does. Scriveners perform functions which today one would go to a solicitor or an investment advisor. But their main business, and certainly their most lucrative business, was money lending. It was a time of rapidly rising prices, uh, prices and of ostentatious expenditure among the aristocracy, slow to adapt itself to new economic realities. It was also a time when merchants and businessmen often needed the sort of bridging loan for which they would today turn to a bank. The scrivener might be the go-between linking borrower and lender, as well as lending on his own account. Interest rates were high by close attention to detail, good timing, and firm use of legal processes. There were handsome profits to be made. John Milton Sr. did well. By 1632, when he was nearly 70 years old, he had enough money to retire. After setting up his younger son, Christopher, as a lawyer and providing a good marriage portion for his daughter, he was still able to maintain his elder son in a leisure, which included an expensive 15 months continental tour. Yeah, Um, his dad says like he basically kept john milton the younger until he was 30 uh and john could basically just continue his studies and uh invest in his uh you know uh desire to become the epic poet of uh, england and this reminds me of a i think james Fenimore cooper might have had a period like this in his 20s and also uh nathaniel hawthorne definitely did where he lived uh uh with his mother and just like they put food outside the door um and he would just read and uh, write out there I think Milton in his late 20s also started lending money out himself and acquired some land through his very young wife, which he then rented out as a landlord. So. Exactly. Yeah. He gets into the family business there and that, that gives him a nice little uh, uh, nest egg for the trouble. So when all yeah, the revolution yeah, stuff is going on, Milton's... Through the revolution. Yeah. Yep. So successful a career in a profession suggests considerable toughness, not to say ruthlessness. In the last resort, legal processes had to be used. The scrivener could not afford to be too squeamish when faced uh, with the protestation of a garrulous widow who claimed that she had not understood what she had committed herself to. In 1624, the other Milton made an apprentice his partner, perhaps 
to look after the less agreeable aspects of the business. His retirement may even have been connected with the increasingly brash behavior of this partner. We do not know. But even when Milton Sr. had retired to rural Horton, uh, where uh, John uh, uh, followed him, he continued to assert himself. He built a pew in the parish church, which exceeded the authorized height, and he was ordered to cut it down to size. (laughs) Uh, I like that detail. Um, the poet growing up in London in a street wholly inhabited by rich merchants must have has absorbed uh, the Protestant ethic with the air he breathed. It would be taken for granted that hard work was a religious duty, that bargains were made to be kept and that and enforced by law against those who could not or would not keep them, that the weakest went to the wall and that God helped those who helped themselves. A tough tenacity was one of younger Milton's lasting characteristics. He inherited some of his property his father's property is we should see uh, some of the problems of debt collection. His poet, uh, the poet frequently expressed dislike of the legal profession, but he never hesitated to use debt collection or legal processes to enforce what he believed to be his rights. And he had remarkably extensive knowledge of the law. Unlike the elder, elder John, the poet remained on excellent terms with both his parents until their death. He worried from time to time about the ethics of usury, but decided on balance, it was lawful. Uh, his dad, yeah, as we mentioned, um, yeah, was a rebel um, against his family's religious beliefs. And then just one final note, because he wasn't just uh, you know, a moneylender. But though it was a business-like bourgeois household, it was also a civilized household. The Mermaid Tavern was just around the corner. The Scrivener loved music and was himself no mean composer. In 1601, he participated in the Triumph of Oriana, a tribute to Queen Elizabeth from the best composers in the country. So very musically minded. One of Milton's early poems is about his dad's musicality and how uh, he thanks his dad for uh, following the business life that, so he doesn't have to follow it. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. What else do you guys uh, want to ta- say about Milton's uh, uh, background there? That was just a detail that was interesting. Apparently his father was, because he was like quite a cultured man, as you said, he was a musician Um he was a trustee of the Blackfriars Theatre, where Shakespeare's, um, where the King's Men would perform. And I think he actually hooked John Milton, his son, up with some sort of a gig. I remember one of the, one of the early poems. Um, do you yeah. remember what that was, Matt? Yeah, it was in, like, I think Ben Johnson's Shakespeare, like, uh, Shakespeare, a publishing of Shakespeare's plays, and Milton, like very young, got a got a preface. I haven't read that uh, in it, but um, yeah, Milton got placed in that, and that's a good placement, uh, you know, if you're in your twenties. That's right, and, and, and yeah. I like that because there's a there's a folio, I believe, in Philadelphia of Shakespeare's plays, and they didn't know until like late. Uh, that the, it was actually John Milton's, uh, the His poet. Copy. Yeah, exactly. And so it, I, I think it's. I mean, I'm I'm getting really into iambic pentameter. I think it is like I, I get it now. Um, and like knowing Milton was a fan, and he rewrote uh, Macbeth a little bit. Um, I guess too. I haven't read that also. Um, but um, and yeah, like his his uh, that he was uh, sort of in the uh, wake of Shakespeare. Um, and then sort of like I think I think sort of like. I, uh, Elliot may not like his influence on language. I think like what he did with the English language in Paradise Lost is just incredible, like continuation of Shakespeare's, um, like the greatest Shakespeare's monologues. I feel like that's, that's what sort of that, la- that language is. It might not be as compelling dramatically, but like the, what's going on with the language is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I so think, his dad, go ahead. I think Milton is like a proof of concept for 
I guess it would be like late Tudor England, which is like they've, they recently allowed people to write about secular subjects in theater, which kind of created Shakespeare essentially. And then they created the King James Bible, which is like, okay, in a, a, a rather miraculous translation that's just beautiful on the page. Yeah. Uh, it allowed the everyday person to experience art in a way that the English people and most people on earth had never really experienced before. And you watch like just one generation into like that kind of like, uh, like steeping into that kind of culture and what it can create. And it creates this person who takes all these elements and makes something both old and new out of it. He's just like, he's just a perfect example of like what education can do or what, what like being steeped in the classics honestly can do to the average person. I mean, he's just the son of like, you know, uh, what would be a middle-class worker at the time. And he can write at levels that are like, that, that still boggle the mind today. It's really like quite, he's kind of a miracle in that way. Yeah. And like, but I do like the idea that he's a model for like uh, basically an enlightenment sort of like humanities God. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. Like, um, like, and so he gets educated by private tutors. His dad basically is allowed, allowing him the education of an elite sort of son of aristocracy, which is another parallel to Orwell, right? Like Orwell's dad participated in the British Empire. Orwell gets to go to this elite school with a bunch of kids who are of class way higher than him. And, um, but like Milton gets all these private tutors. He gets to, um, uh, St. Paul's school, uh, 1620, where he, um, makes his friendship with Charles Diodati. Um, the, uh, uh, it was from a family of Italian Protestants who, uh, sought refuge in, uh, England. You know, he starts writing poems immediately. Um, that's like basically like a Latin exercise type of thing, like rephrase this in this language and, and do all that sort of stuff. And it, well, and that was the double translation, the, when you would translate from Latin to English and then translate from English back to Latin. That was like the gold standard at St. Paul's. And then yeah. Milton, because he knew, he was also learning like Hebrew and he knew some Italian and French. He would do it with all the other languages. So he would like translate Latin to English to Italian to French. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Amazing is right. Because I will say if I was back in that day, I would not have my master's degree. I'd, I would have, <laughs> I'd be like, I'm going to go fucking go bail some hay. Like I, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to be translating that shit like that. Do we want to mention Thomas Young, his tutor? Uh, uh, talk about Thomas Young. I don't have uh, notes for him. Well, he was um, he was Scottish and he was a Presbyterian and very much kind of opposed to uh, the bishops and uh, quite fiery. I think he ended up um, he tutored Milton. I think from the age of eleven. Is that right, Alex? Around that time, and I th- I think he taught him some Hebrew. He eventually gifted him a Hebrew Bible. And he was kind of like a an influence on Milton for quite a while. He ended up going to Hamburg to be the um, to be like the minister for the English merchants in Hamburg during the Thirty Years' War. And Milton wrote him a poem, uh, basically talking about how worried he was that he was kind of out in this war zone. <laughs> um, it's quite sweet, but he seems to have been a a, a brilliant. Uh, scholar and and teacher for Milton. Yeah, and what's interesting is like uh, uh, people make a note. I think Hill does um, that 
like the education um and actually it's the poet of revolution guy uh let me pull this up uh nicholas mcdowell that like a lot of the um sort of learning that influenced him on the question of say can we take a king's life if he uh you know becomes an enemy of the people type of thing was from like classic sources it wasn't like you know, Milton was very fluent with and conversant with the um, radical discourse, but uh, also a lot of this stuff comes from like, you know, it's like watch Shakespeare, <laughs> right? Like, or, or, uh, or yeah, like the Greeks. Um, also, the interesting thing in that McDowell biography, he makes the point that when a lot of these boys who had been to like the excellent grammar schools, schools like St. Paul's in London, um, would go up to university and find that what they had learned at grammar school was way beyond what they were teaching in the first and second years at Cambridge right. or Oxford. And that there was always some kind of friction. And a lot of the boys were um, were not happy and ended up being like disciplined or in Milton's case, rusticated, which is the bizarre arcane term that Cambridge and Oxford still use for when you get expelled or sent down. Um, for kind of disciplinary reasons. So Milton was rusticated. I'm not sure if biographers have have reached kind of consensus on why, but I know that McDowell suggests that it was because he was a little bit full of himself, having come from St. Paul's and having had the tutoring from Young, that he was just kind of way ahead and found a lot of the stuff he had to do at first pretty boring. There was a lot of Aristotelian kind of, logic that you had to do and Milton was really keen just to be reading poetry reading the classics and composing poetry as well yeah Milton was big on like uh educational reform he has a big uh a pamphlet on it during the uh during the uh English uh, civil war um a couple other uh context for his childhood uh the anti uh popery so uh, the 5th of November, uh, the gunpowder plot, 1605, only three years before uh, he's born. Basically, like if you're born in the wake of 9-11, right? Um, and, and also, if like, instead of like, um, you know, trying to make people afraid of, uh, of, of uh, you know, religious fundamentalists across the world in trucks, um, they were a lot closer and a lot more powerful. Um, like that's, that's the difference there in, uh, uh, um, anti-Catholic versus anti-Islam stuff, I think in the modern context. Um, and there's this other crazy thing that happens, uh, called the fatal Vespers, which is a collapse of a building of a bunch of Catholic worshipers. They were in the top floor of, uh, uh, a building, uh, that housed the French ambassadorship. And so that had diplomatic immunity to do Catholic mass. This was in uh, 1623 when Milton would have been about 15 and uh, it collapsed and I think 95 uh, people or so die. Um, and the Protestants are like, that's what you get. <laughs> like, right. Like, like that's exactly right. Thank you God for celebrating it. it. They were really it's- celebrating it. Yeah, like there's poems uh, that Milton would have read uh, that are like, you know, there you go, Bert. Like, um, and it's like it's it's like I can't remember the exact poem, but it's like the the floor collapses and like the the dower um, icons, uh, the image portraits of like church sort of like elders or something like that fall in on top of them. That's an interesting context um, for. And Milton wrote also um, poems 
about the gunpowder plot. His longest poem in Latin is about, about the gunpowder plot. The other weird thing is, so Alex, I don't know if you, you've read the book of revelations. Uh, yeah. Yeah. At least once for sure. Okay. So Milton got uh, very influenced by it uh, in regards to his uh, virginity. So there's a uh, heavenly song prophesied in Revelation 14 to 3, the apprehension of which is limited to those who have remained virgins on earth, supposedly. Uh, it says, I have heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. Now, already that sounds like a masturbation um, uh, uh, joke. But anyway, I, th- I think we'll take it. Interesting. Yeah, go on. Uh, I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung as if it were a new song before the throne. No man could learn that song but the 140, uh, 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And Milton's like, all right, I want to hear that song. Sorry, ladies. Um, I'm, I'm just not going not gonna to be out there. And I don't know, like that, that part, I don't know. Do you guys have any comment on his, like, because it, what's, uh, what's interesting about it is he later uh, defends divorce and everyone calls him a libertine. And he, and like Chris said, he has to apologize for like these Latin poems about, um, you know, uh, semen and sphincters and stuff like that. Um, and, and so he, it doesn't, he like takes this posture of innocence and virginity and ultimately um, that doesn't do him any good. And people smear him as a libertine. Um, but I just thought that that was crazy to me. Like that the book of revelations, I didn't hear, I've never heard that before Milton. Um, and it's always just interesting to me, the way we talk about, like we orientalize like the Quran and talking about like the, the virgins you get in heaven or whatever like that. And actually it's grapes. It's like, well, you know what? Like <laughs> Bible's got a lot of that shit too. Yeah, I think that there's a... No, you go ahead, Grace. Uh, At this time, there was also this belief that um, ejaculation was uh, a sort of... (laughs) That there was like a finite finite amount of ejaculation that a man could do in his lifetime and the less the better for his constitution. So you don't want to be kind of, you know, that needs to be regulated. Otherwise, you'll end up kind of expending all of your uh, life force. And there's a reference in um, Shakespeare's sonnet 129, the expense of spirit in a waste of shame. That's all about this. Um, (laughs) That's hilarious. And I think Milton was channeling that sentiment um, in this this discourse on on virginity and so on and it also relates to the kind of platonic ideal of this sacred relationship that could exist between men that was very passionate very emotional quite intimate but perhaps not physically consummated but existed as this kind of pure um refined intellectual connection which is something that milton had with charles diodati Right. Um, who sadly died and after he died well we'll probably get to this but i think it had quite a profound effect on milton um and yeah. his marriage was not really successful um so yeah there's a lot going on with around ideas of homosociality and virginity and etc yeah yeah diodati um 
is sort of like his intellectual, like, um, like that they're, they're very synced up intellectually. And then when he dies, yeah, Milton's like, who else, who's going to understand me like this? Basically. Um, I think so, if I can, uh, I, intrude i think that that is absolutely right grace and i think that like that's such a like insightful way to put it and i think just to like add one more gloss onto it is that the pressure that um like protestant england had put on uh to the average reader is that like like you can you can just like read this text and understand uh, the concepts that are like within it. You don't need any gloss. Like you don't need any like uh, uh, like Catholic extras on to like what you're reading. You can just understand it by the way that you read it. And I think there's like a serious tension in um, Milton's prose that is like he's reading the Bible and trying to understand it totally. And also like reading these pagan writers and understanding them totally and trying to find a way to like make them all mesh together, but they're not really meshing <laughs> basically. <laughs> and there's this like deep frustration that's like uh, burrowed within like all these writings that he's doing and trying to find some way to like make them all cohere. Like he wants to synthesize these concepts, but he writes as someone who like cannot synthesize. That's so just like a little bit from here, a little bit from there. It's just like a, like a soup almost of, of concepts and they clash constantly. And that's what makes him, I think, for me, like such a fascinating writer. Yeah, that's that's a great way of putting it. And also, I think there's um, there's something in, particularly in Areopagitica, but arguably across his whole, all of his works, that I, I think Milton, fundamentally, he's all about the process. So that sounds like a cliche. It is a cliche today to be like, it's about the journey, not the destination. But with Milton, it really does seem to be about like sorting out different, you know, allusions to classical Greece or Rome, uh, the Bible, like English epic and trying to kind of synthesize them. And like you say, never quite getting there because it is an impossible task. But I think he's, there's something special about the way he found a, a register in the English language as it was in the early 17th century to kind of show thought moving on the page. And that's really what Areopagitica does so well. And it's not just thought, it's it's persuasive argument and it's like a very powerful persuasive argument. But I think that's what a lot of people and critics have responded to in his writing. It's that Milton is this very powerful thinker um he's not like a beautiful poet as such but his there's something like electric in the way he writes and the energy that he puts on the page that I think is why I love reading him in a way that I don't love reading you know some of his contemporaries I find I really like John Donne but I struggle with John Donne sometimes in a way that I just don't with Milton. There's something very sort of fluent and fluid about his, his work. Yes. I mean, absolutely. And I think that like something about, there's something beautiful in Milton playing with like that dialectic between opposites, but refusing to synthesize. Like if that is like the one definition of Milton, I would say that like he takes all these concepts, but he will never, ever, ever 
put them into one single category. He'll just be like, look at all these categories. Isn't that cool? And I'm putting that under this umbrella of me and that's it. And I can't, I can't actually define it in any real way. Yeah, because he's putting, you know, like Greek thought outside uh, a biblical thought. Um, is that, you know, is it too far to say, like, you know, we can't reduce that this stuff or synthesize it into one because we're fallen? And like, the re- or is that, you know, taking the Paradise Lost reading too far? Well, I think that, I mean, we can get into it, but I think that's like the thesis of his text that, you can't synthesize this stuff that it's like the, the conflict of these two concepts or three concepts or whatever is actually worth having much more than trying to find out the solution. It's like, it's good to, it's good to have that struggle. Like that's the point of ideas, I think for Milton. And morally as well. I mean, Ariopagitica is all about this idea that uh, Adam knew good by evil and that's the thing, like you cannot have one without the other. And even before the fall, good and evil were mixed up together. We just didn't know it yet. Right. And there's that amazing line in, in the text where he says, um, talking of like dialectics and, and oppositions, he said, we bring not innocence into the world. We bring impurity much rather. That which purifies us is trial and trial is by what is contrary yeah, I think that runs all the way through um, this idea of opposition and productive tension. Yeah. So he turns about 16, goes to uh, Christ College, Cambridge. A um, little bit of the historical context there. Um, again, a lot, of, a lot of the politics going on. Milton went, this is from a Christopher Hill again. Milton went up to Christ College, Cambridge in 1625. It was an unhappy period in the university's history. On the one hand, government and bishops were trying to bring both universities and their colleges under tighter control. Since universities trained parsons, the opinion formers, and were also attended by many gentlemen, the ruling class, control seemed more and more necessary as tensions increased in in church and state. On the other hand, the universities were failing to keep pace with intellectual developments in the country and greater control from the top uh, tended to make for conformity, plain, safe, careerism, idleness. But among some younger dons and undergraduates, hostility to traditional scholasticism was accompanied by receptivity to new ideas. Milton, as, to, as was to be expected, soon aligned himself with the reformers. Um, you know, 1625, James I dies and Charles I accedes. Uh, you also got a plague going on. 1626, William Laud is made uh, Bishop of London. William Laud is basically like the um, uh, well, first thing he's doing that's pissing everybody off is he's making the church look more like the Catholic church, adding like n- new sorts of like, you know, popery and, uh, aesthetics to it that people don't like, uh, and get really and sensitive he about. Also, he, he was the one or his bishops were the ones who tried to, who asked John Milton senior to bring his pew down in height right in the parish church i think that must have been yeah one of lord's policies was to go to all the parish churches and make sure that everyone was conforming and that included pew height apparently yeah a lot i think also was sort of like the top of like the censorship pyramid a little bit too unless i'm misremembering that but that i mean uh, uh, one of the first thing that's done when um parliament takes power is they impeach him um but that's late not to later um, 1629, Charles dissolves Parliament, uh, and then uh, uh, we get uh, 1629. Uh, Milton gets his BA. Uh, 1632, he's admitted to the master's degree, uh, and we can go back and 
add anything you guys want. I just want to get these uh, dates out. Uh, he uh, lives with family at uh, Hammersmith. Um, 1635 moves to Horton, Buckinghamshire. Uh, and in 1637, his mother dies. Now, his mother dying, uh, I think um, McDowell says, um, is one of the things that prompts him to take his Italian or continental tour um, to Italy. I mean, his also his dad's probably sick of him just sitting at home uh, writing poems and masks and all this stuff all the time. Um, and so he goes to uh, Italy, um, meets Galileo, uh, gets allegedly. To, allegedly, yeah, that's uh, insane I mean, it, if true. Also, that is, <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he says he does <laughs> if, right? if true. Like I think at least he claims he does, but he also claims that he returned. Uh, because of the um, the troubles in the Civil War, but he actually probably did because Diodati died. Um, so there's a little bit of uh, myth making. Um, I'm going on a little bit there. Um, and uh, but yeah, like some other things about Italy, he uh, visits a Vatican library and they like allow him to to you know shop around a little bit. And even though like there's this uh, this true uh, justified reputation of you know um, uh, repression of sort of thought. Um, he's got the hookup. Um, and it, it's interesting because like Milton realizes, and he mentions it in Areopagitica that like he heard people in Italy talk about how much they value the, or, or envy the freedoms of England. And Milton's comes from the position of like, well, here in England, um, not for long, maybe because it looks like we're just um, repeating the same uh, problems. I also thought it was interesting that the, uh, the Italian sort of uh, service, social services, like healthcare and stuff were a lot better than the English. They're talking about how much like um, people, how much um, poor people they feed and stuff like that. And uh, not in Protestant England, unfortunately. Um, so that's just one baby uh, point of comparison. Um, but yeah, he, uh, he uh, returns upon, um, Basically, as things are starting to heat up with the Civil War, and Diodati dies. Um, yeah, so yeah, it says supposedly meets Galileo, Florence, Rome, Naples, Venice, Geneva. Nice little, nice little tour. And it, that's a, that's typically a the continental tour is something done by the children of aristocracy. So that's another sort of privilege that Milton's got because you know his dad uh, making really good bank. So he returns to England, 1639, moving back to Fleet Street, uh, begins teaching his nephews. Uh, he uh, is uh, not, a, well, he beats the, beats the Latin into the kids. Um, he was also uh, probably hit at, uh, as a kid at Cambridge. Um, and uh, Samuel Johnson said he was one of the last maybe to, to be like that because he was 16 when he started. And that was young enough to be, um, uh, you know, hit with the rod. Um, yeah, there's a reference to him being whipped by his tutor. Yeah, okay. and that's another, I guess, Orwell parallel is the uh, sort of like um, uh, brutal school experience. And I uh, starts publishing the Episcopal tracks. I have this selection here um, to just to get into the 1640s and what they uh, what they represented um, for ideas. So here is uh, here is uh, Christopher Hill. It's from chapter eight of the uh, uh, entitled Milton and the Radicals. And this is, uh, it starts with a quote from Iconoclastes, uh, Milton's icon uh, smasher. Um, I never knew the time in England when men of truest religion were not counted sectaries. And that's the interesting thing I like about Milton is he's very open, like you said, to like not 
to allowing the like fight and allowing the like tension and struggle of different viewpoints. Um, anyway, here's a hill. The early 1640s were a formative period for English radical thinking and for Milton. We do not ask ourselves often enough uh, what Milton's life would have been like if the long parliament had not met in 1640. The long parliament basically um, parliament saying, Hey, the King can't just tell us to get lost this time. We have to agree this time. And that's what ultimately leads to the parliament versus King fight um, that uh, leads us uh, starts a civil war. He would presumably have lived in obscurity in London, taking a few pupils and trying out his educational theories. He might have ultimately have written a poem on the early British or English history, which would have been very different from Paradise Lost. The unique fact about the years after 1640 was that the censorship broke down, church courts collapsed, and with them, upper class control over the third culture. So Hill has this concept of uh, like first, second, third cultures, first culture being sort of royalist. Second culture being sort of mainstream reformists and third being the like really radical, like leveler, uh, ranter type folks. The censorship broke down, church courts collapsed, and with them, upper class control over the third culture. What was revealed was a fierce popular hostility to gentry and aristocracy and to the monarchy which protected them. Evidence for this is overwhelming. For the first time in English history, the ideas of the radical underground could be freely preached, discussed, and criticized. They could even be printed. A printing press in the 17th century was a relatively inexpensive piece of machinery, and most printers were themselves small men open to radical ideas. It took a year or two for two. It took a year or two for men and women to realize what was happening. But sometime before September 1643, Abraham Crowley listed antinomians, er, or listed antinomians, Arians, and libertines among the most enthusiastic London supporters of Parliament. In September, Robert Bailey told his Scottish friends that the independents were growing, the Anabaptists were more, the antinomians most of all. By April 1644, he was reporting even more deplorable ideas, the mortality of the soul, which Milton believed in, um, the uh, denial of the existence of angels and devils, rejection of all sacraments. Two months later, Socinianism had been added to the list, and Roger Williams was said to be advocating no church at all. Very many are for total liberty of all religions, Bailey reported in July a year later, there were libertines, and by April 1646, diverse, from whom I least expected it, are for putting away the whole of the royal race. Um, so, yeah, like the, I, I really like that idea that, like, um, the, just under the surface, waiting to not be repressed is this antipath- hostility to gentry and aristocracy. Uh, reminds me a little bit of why Twitter. Uh, won't allow you to reply to like Bill Gates's Twitter feed anymore. Um, because actually, if you allowed that, you might see a lot of, um, so let's say suppressed and, uh, um, dark sentiment that, that doesn't get, uh, filtered up to say like if, uh, Bill Gates gets interviewed in MSNBC or something like that. A little bit more. This is from Edward Bernstein on Cromwell and communism. Um, on May 27, 1641, the House of Commons proceeded to discuss a resolution to abolish the episcopate. The episcopacy is basically just like the church leadership um, bureaucracy in England um, to replace the the um, papacy, right, Alex? Yes, that's okay. all I got. <laughs> um, uh, ju- yeah, and and like we said, Milton's like you're basically just doing um, what the Pope's doing. A resolution to abolish the Episcopate when Waller, a nephew of John Hampton and still partisan of Parliament, said it would be a good thing to clip the bishop's horns and claws. They might perhaps go even a little further, 
but to abolish the Episcopacy altogether would entail very serious risks. That the masses were against Episcopacy seemed to Waller as he avowed an argument in its favor. For I look upon Episcopacy as the counterscarp or outwork, which, if it were be taken by this assault of the people and with all this mystery once revealed, quote, that we must deny them nothing when they ask it thus in troops, end quote, we may in the next place have as hard a task to defend our property as we have lately had to recover it from the prerogative. If by multiplying hands and petitions they prevail for an equality in things ecclesiastical, the next demand perhaps may be lex agraria, like uh, the like equality in things temporal. So already a consciousness in the 1640s that the church is basically psychological operations uh, that need to be there to control people. Because if they don't understand that they can't question, if they, if they understand that they can question these religious structures, then they're going to understand that they can restructure or question structures of property as well. Uh, Bernstein continues. Waller proceeds to refer to the history of ancient Rome, in which the decline of the Republic, some people say it was because they got too gay, like, uh, what's that, I forget what that guy's name is, have you heard that? Um, this is what Nixon was obsessed with, like, these, these historians that say, like, the Romans, they just did too much, like, sodomy. But Waller proceeds to refer to the history of ancient Rome, in which the decline of the Roman Republic coincided with the assumption of power by the masses. The power to demand a law quickly became the power to make a law. And once the legions discovered that they could make anyone they pleased dictator, they refused to allow the Senate to have any more voice in the matter. If it should be objected, I mean, think about the Senate, the filibuster, all these, the, the Supreme Court, all these sort of structures. If it should be objected that the Episcopacy was not that which had been laid down in the Holy Scriptures, Waller was not prepared to dispute this. But I am confident it says in quotes, whenever an equal division of lands and goods shall be desired, there will be as many places in scripture found out which seem to favor that as there are now alleged against the prelacy or preferment of the church. So he's saying like, even though like the Bible might like not say this, like if we're going to use the Bible to adjudicate everything, we might also lose property, which is again, contrary to Milton who thought the the Bible should be like the fundamental source for everything. And that's ultimately like um, where he gets off of sort of like the more Quaker radicalism where it's like, if the Bible is wrong, like, like we just figure out why, you know, we can just agree it's wrong. Um, but yeah, like that. So that's the milieu a little bit of, uh, of uh, what's at stake here with the whole church state um, um, issues. I just wanted to mention there's that group of clergymen, Puritan <clears throat> clergymen in the early 1640s that get together and Milton's tutor, Thomas Young, his former tutor is one of them. I think there are five, five of them and they call themselves, uh, this amazing portmanteau of all of their names. And it's just one of the most absurd names of <laughs> that I've ever heard. They call themselves Smectimnuous. Oh, right. um, I, <laughs> I just wanted to mention that because it makes me laugh so much. Um, the, the five members of the group were Stephen Marshall, Edmund Calamy, Thomas Young, Matthew Newcomen, and William Spurstow. And so if you line up all of their initials, it's Smectimnuous. Smeg Tim Newest. And Milton actually wrote some pamphlets for them and he wrote a postscript for one of their pieces as well. So he was kind of connected. I don't think he 
fully kind of shared their theology, um, but he certainly, through his relationship to Thomas Young, and he did certainly have sympathies with them, um, so he was somewhat connected. Yeah. I got to say, like, Smectimius, that does seem like such a British thing. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of, like, that weird, like, a couple of years ago, there was a national poll on what we should call this submarine, and yeah. everyone said Boaty McBoatface. So for some yeah. reason, like, they seem on the same level in my mind. No, I, I, yeah, I agree with that. Like, it's kind of, yeah. Um, just a little bit more on the third culture stuff. Um so uh, there's this, this this work called Gangrena. I don't know if you, you it mentioned it in a couple of the works here. It's by mm-hmm. a guy, um, uh, uh, Thomas Edwards. And, is that a leveler tract? Well, so no. It, what it is is, and let me see. I got some notes here. Um, Gangrena, it's concerned about the levelers. So basically, this guy, Thomas Edwards, uh, uh, Sort of, I think, I think he's a episcopate or something like that, or basically he's sympathetic to oh, church. That's right. He's this is the reactionary track. Yeah, he basically collects all of these heresies. He's a heresiographer, and he finds all of. Well, here's an. Here, this is in his own words. I wrote Gangrena out of the pride and vanity of my own mind, out of disdain that plain unlearned men should seek for knowledge any other way than as they were directed by us that are learned, out of base fear if they should fall to teach one another that we should lose our dominion in being sole judges in doctrine and discipline, whereby our predecessors has whereby our predecessors have overruled states and kingdoms or lastly that we may lose our profits and plenteous maintenance by tithes a big uh english civil war demand was that we get rid of the tithe system um all this i saw coming with that liberty which plain men took to try to examine all things uh, and here's a little bit more from uh from milton or from a hill in gangrena thomas edwards denounced further errors numbers 47 through 9 that all officers ought to be elected by the people that the house of commons had the supreme power and that the people were sovereign that all men were born equal and had natural rights to liberty and property and that precedents were not binding views like these were soon to be proclaimed by the civil heretics they called the levelers milton was closer to them than the reluctant republican oliver cromwell milton's political theories were expressed with force and eloquence but they were for the most part, not original. This is another thing with Orwell is what is so good about Orwell. Isn't that he like had all these ideas just come out of his brain. It's that he was conversant with basically the radicals and mediated those ideas up into like his, the on, basically platformed them to use a, a modern uh, um, parlance. Uh, he pointed out that the Presbyterians in 1649, that the ideas they ca- uh, cried out, upon as subversive in fact derived from 16th century Calvinists. Both Areopagitica and the tenure of kings and magistrates drew on traditions of radical thinking that were common to independents, levelers, and others. William Sedgwick, for instance, described kings as deputies and commissioners, just as Milton did. Milton's statement made first made in 1641 and repeated in the tenure that all men, since Adam are born free, had been, as we have seen, a traditional lower class reading of the Bible ever since the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 and no doubt earlier. I love that Adam's Sons of Adam sort of egalitarianism. Uh, you see that in Shakespeare, uh, Henry VI, Part Two, uh, the Jack Cade Rebellion, where they make jokes like, you know, like, okay, your dad was an aristocrat, but ultimately his great great grandfather was a gardener. Um, 
and uh and I really like that but um one of the uh heretics that Edwards mentioned in Gangrena was Milton for his divorce stuff which um we can maybe touch on a little bit but Milton responded in a poem on the new forces of conscience under the long parliament ends like this men whose life learning faith and pure intent would have been held in high esteem with Paul must now be named and printed heretics. So basically like this poem is about how everybody should be allowed to be judges and it shouldn't be like uh, uh, kept to like some priestly elect Um, um, must now be named and printed heretics by shallow Edwards and Scotch. What do you call what do you call uh, saying? I don't know his name, but also that's a joke because a Scottish name could sound like what do you call Um, uh, by shallow Edwards and Scotch. What do you call, but we do hope to find out all your tricks, your plots and packing wars, than those in of Trent. So the Council of Trent was, I believe, a uh, um, the censorship um, uh, uh, body. That so the Parliament may, with their wholesome and preventive shears, clip your phylacteries, though balk your ears, uh, and succor our just fears when they shall read this clearly in your charge. New presbyter is but old priest writ large. So again, like there's the new presbyters are basically reproducing the repression of the, the papacy. One thing that was amazing yeah. to me reading about this period, Matt, was that just how kind of messy and complicated it was. And I'm just thinking, like, I'm trying to listen to what we're saying through the ears of someone who maybe hasn't read the Areopagitica or doesn't know much about the Civil War. And it's just like, it's actually really hard to get a handle on who the different parties are and what everyone is arguing. And and moreover, where Milton fits into that, because he seems to have had such a kind of unique take on all of these questions. Like he's, um, you know, he's not quite a leveler, but he's also not like he's got his very trenchant criticisms of the presbyters and he's obviously not into the Pope and like not into the monarchy, but it's just, it's amazing how kind of fragmented, I mean, you could say fragmented or diverse and put a positive spin on it, but there is just a lot going on here. It's so much more complicated than Protestant versus Catholic, which is like oh, yeah. what I raised to think it was, you know? Right. Yeah. You got like, I mean, ultimately, like, I feel like the radical stuff sort of becomes uh, the Quakers, right? Like what what is like levelers, ranters, uh, um, levelers being, I mean, yeah, it's, it's probably too hard to even get into those levelers being like basically like radical egalitarians, small market radical egalitarians, or small government <laughs> radical egalitarians. Um, you have fifth monarchists who basically are like millenarian, like the end time is coming and like Christ's thousand year reign is at, at coming. Like, so yeah, but uh, they all can agree. Let's get rid of the king, <laughs> right? Like that's, but besides that, like what you do yeah. about property particularly is the main issue that particularly Cromwell during the revolution has to decide, like um, ultimately Cromwell during the revolution decides that we need to crush the more radical um, levelers part of the yeah. um, revolution and go with the, like the Quaker or the Puritan um, style, like, bourgeois revolution so that it's very much like a bourgeois revolution the way the french and american ones would would be of uh of people that are definitely radical against um of uh, feudalism but they're replacing it with basically the power of capital um and uh yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah he gets back and all this stuff is going on he 
Diodati dies, his best friend, and he marries Mary Powell. Uh, Mary Powell uh, is of a royalist family, so she doesn't. This is in 1642, and this is right when things are really, really heating up um, between Parliament and the King, because King just wants to do his shit, and the Parliament's like, "We got all the stuff we needed to do. Let's fight about it." So he marries Mary Powell, uh, who returns to her royalist family. Um, he marries her in May, and she's back with her family in August. Um, as the civil war is heating up and uh, <laughs> coincidentally Milne starts publishing divorce tracks. These divorce tracks, I think would be a lot more interesting to me if I was uh, a seeking a divorce uh, and B thought that God was uh, probably the main person I need to like check in with. None of those is the case. So I find them pretty difficult reading, I must say. Um, but uh, do you guys have any comments on his divorce track stuff? It, what it, what it does do is like we said, it, it scandalizes people. So you have all of this, um, civil war rupture. And one thing people point to is, Oh, look at people want to do, you know, uh, no fault divorce now. And these libertines, they want to, you know, do all this stuff with, and, and, you know, uh, break these, you know, ancient, um, sort of uh, um, binds of uh, marriage and stuff like that. Well, I think Milton does that um, quite exquisitely in that he centers the concept of marriage away from a social compact to just an interpersonal compact between two people. And he says, like, like he makes the case way ahead of time being like, if you guys just like don't like each other, you should get divorced because he doesn't like his wife. And I know it's like an easy kind of nasty swipe. You can make him like, oh, he got bored of his wife, but he never, they never got along. And he's saying that like, that is grounds for divorce. That's grounds for dissolving this social compact between two people. And that is radical at the time. And I think now it's like, uh, pretty much normal, but the idea that like your marriage between you and your partner is between the two of you. And if you two have, uh, uh, differences that can't be resolved, uh, the marriage contract should be dissolved. And I think that's like this kind of miraculous thing that someone would put in print in a time when, uh, like the divine right of Kings is like in its heyday, basically. It's like, it's almost like someone reaching out, uh, from the deep past and being like, yeah, I'm one of you. Like if you asked any person today, they probably would agree with Milton and his sentiment that like, if these two people can't find a way to connect on any like interpersonal level, they should get divorced. They would say, yeah, absolutely. But if you were to say like, okay, but this pamphlet is from the 1640s, they would be like, what? Or I don't know, something like that. Yeah. But yeah. And I, go ahead, Chris. I just want to, Caution, uh, it was certainly radical for its time, but it was um, his arguments for divorce were certainly not built on a concept of equality between the sexes. And I wouldn't want anyone to get the impression that they were because he was still writing from a highly kind of conventional patriarchal worldview that posited that, you know, only men, only males were made in God's image. And I think like the way I see the divorce tracts um, are as a kind of argument for the advancement of man's mas- man's self-mastery. So being 
having the freedom for males to have the freedom to determine their own, the conditions of their own lives. And that is radical and like, you know, to be applauded. Uh, but I don't think he ever, he certainly never um, expressed any concern about like domestic violence, which was obviously rife at the time and, you know, men beating their wives and, and so on. So I think it's like an interesting sort of social vision that he's advancing, but it's, it, it doesn't feel quite as moral to me, more social and kind of political, I guess. Yeah. It's really focused on the part from Adam and Eve, where this is about having a conversation partner. Um, and that, and that is like, it's salutary in the sense that like you said, it, it, it's sort of like the companionate marriage, um, that sort of idea of a, of a relationship companion. That's like, that's better than just like, you know, um, what kind of dowry you got and how many kids were popping out. Um, but you know, that's, that's also built. That's like the model of the male platonic relationship, right? That that right. companionate marriage where it's like, it's a chaste marriage, but it's one where you can at least discuss ideas or whatever. Um, yeah. Read poetry together, maybe. <laughs> anyway, they don't get divorced, but she has gone for a few years. Uh, she eventually does return. But um now let's turn to Areopagitica. I think, what, what, do you think we should get into the text first? Or do you think we should zoom? I, I want to zoom through the as other prose works and then we can get into the text. But Areopagitica here, so this, this entire time he's developing this, idea, and I don't think we stress this enough, desire to be a sort of great poet, right? Like he's very inspired or uh, influenced by uh, Dante and Virgil and wants to do that in England. And his first idea is we're going to do that with the Arthur story, but the combination of going, you know, international and then coming back to a country that's just politics are completely in shambles. It's hard to write the epic about Arthur when, you know, every shit's falling apart. But uh, this is from uh, um, Nicholas McDowell. Milton is fulsome about the power of poetry and his own poetic ambition in the early prose attacks on the English bishops. Uh, most strikingly uh, in the extraordinary promise of 1642 that we go on to write the great national epic of the English speaking peoples. Yeah. The conviction that wit can only flourish when a free, when it is free and that it can only be free when a nation has rid itself of the tyrannical duncery of the persecutory clergy finds its most elegance because Virgil and um, uh, Virgil and Dante both persecuted by the state um, for their speech. Um, and, and Milne's basically collecting all these stories. One of the great things about Areopagitica is its historicization of censorship in a, in a way that does also seem, um, I, I mean, it seems learned for its time, but it seems modern. Um, and the Frederick Jameson sort of always historicize uh, exhortation. This is from David Lowenstein's uh, collection of John Milton's prose. This is just the preface of Areopagitica here. Milne published Areopagitica unlicensed and unregistered in 1644, a response to Parliament's licensing order. Again, Parliament had taken over from the king. There was this brief period of radical openness, and now Parliament wants to start uh, 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 licensing stuff again. A response to Parliament's license order of June 1643, which required that appointed officers examine books before their publication. During the personal rule of Charles I, when the king had dispensed with a Parliament, there had been strict, there had been strict censorship. Censorship, however, collapsed when Parliament's abolition of the Court of the Star Chamber, the Court of Law, maintained royal authority during the personal rule. 
uh, in July 1641. The Long Parliament did try to introduce a system of censorship. The licensing order of 1643 was one attempt to do so, but it did little to diminish the great outpouring of print during the years of the English Revolution. As Milton addresses Parliament in the form of an oration, he challenges it to seize the great historical moment uh, to further reform uh, and shows a keen awareness of the capacity of print to fuel political and religious debate with much arguing, much writing, and many opinions. That's Areopagitica. Before we get into the text of uh, Areopagitica, I just want to uh, read the context for a couple other of his prose works. So these are the revolutionary, uh, the, the wartime writings like Orwell has. Um, everything's going up. Um, he writes Areopagitica during this licensing thing. Um, there's two other bits uh, that I think are worth people's attention. One is the tenure of kings and magistrates. So the tenure of kings and magistrates and like Areopagitica, very good piece of writing. These other ones are more radical, I think. And this is when, uh, and we'll get into his, his, his period serving the uh, protectorate with Cromwell more when we cover Paradise Lost. But it basically becomes a secretary of foreign tongues translating foreign communiques for the Cromwell's, um, you know, Republican government. And he's also a major propagandist when shit gets real. So here's the context for the uh, tenure of Kings and magistrates. Milne's tenure of Kings and magistrates was first published February, uh, 1649, two weeks after the execution of Charles I. Although most of it was written slightly before it presents a vigorous defense of revolution and tyrannicide, as well as an assault on the counter-revolutionary politics of Presbyterians the Orthodox Puritans who had later favored a negotiated settlement with the king and opposed regicide. Here, Milton insists, like other contemporary political radicals, such as the Levelers, that, quote, the power of kings and magistrates is nothing else but what is only derivative, transferred, and committed to them in trust from the people. And the power yet remains fundamentally and cannot be taken from them without a violation of their natural birthright. So basically, like, right at the key moment, and a lot of it is like, hey, a lot of you folks were talking a really spicy in the last few years about what we should do to the king. And now that we actually have the moment for accountability, you, you're all squeamish about it. And he's basically saying, like, we're, we're going to go through with this. It's a, it's a very interesting read and obviously like one that you can't help but think about in the context of, like, the French Revolution and stuff like that. Then there's this other one. This is after the king has been killed. Uh, there's a text called Icon uh, Basie-like. And Chris, have you heard of this before? Icon Basie like? No. So I, I, I obviously had not I'm very fascinated by it though, because what Icon Basie like was, uh, well, I'll just read this prefatory note again from the uh, Lowenstein. Uh, Milton's Iconoclastes was first published in October 1649 and then in a second edition in 1650. It was authorized by Parliament and responds in great detail to a royalist book of propaganda, Icon Basie like. The portraiture of his sacred majesty and in his solitudes and sufferings compiled and probably mainly written by John Godden, the future Bishop of Worcester. That book, which purports to be written by Charles I himself, began to circulate on or close to the day Charles' execution on January 30th, 1649. The famous collector of tracts, the English Revolution. Um, anyway, so basically this, this, it's a work of royalist propaganda. Say, um, uh, that came out right at like basically the day of uh, Charles I's execution saying that was God's representative. You just killed there and you should all be fucking terrified and, and, and also like feel bad for Charles. And 
it was extremely, extremely successful. It had a huge influence. And ultimately, like, there's, I think Hiller, somebody writes that it paved the way for restoration to this extent any bit of propaganda did. Milton is tasked with responding to that. And he says, and his response is basically, this is icon, uh, what is it? I, uh, um, Iconoclasm. I- iconic, like, well, yeah, exactly. Like, um, or, or what is it when you are doing the images, though? Ooh, for, good question. <laughs> damn it. I, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Um, but like, yeah, it's, it's image worship by saying he's the king. It's also like extremely grandiose. You're basically like comparing yourself to Jesus and stuff like that. And so Milton has this very forceful, forceful response uh, that, you know, survives to this day, but ultimately uh, Icon basically like wins. The final one. Well, something because- brilliant, something like kind of genius about this moment or like very interesting is that uh, the people who defended the crown never had to explicitly say it. They just like got to do it through like, you know, reference to uh, the Bible or to like great art and be like, look what, like, look what our King can do. No one ever had to like actually enunciate the idea of like the divine right of Kings explicitly to people in writing. Mm-hmm. And like, here you like, here you see it. And they're like, they're kind of on their, like their backstep being like, well, well, of course the King has a right to exist. But in this weird uh, re- revolutionary moment, Milton kind of has the high ground where it's like he automatically asks the question, being like, "Why do we have this?" And someone and the the um, person defending the crown has to is kind of on the back step, has to be like kind of reactionary, which of course is going to be politics for the next uh, four hundred years, basically. <laughs> Yeah. And so um, Iconoclastes, it's a, it's a very uh, valiant response um, and has its effect, but ultimately Icon basically like wins and we have the restoration of the monarchy. One final piece of prose uh, from Milton is the ready and easy way to establish a free commonwealth. And again, from Lowenstein, a major articulation of Milton's godly republicanism uh, was the last significant pamphlet Milton published before the restoration. It was published in two editions as Milton responded to fast changing political circumstances that occurred during the winter and spring of 1660. By the time the second edition was produced or was published in the first week of April 1660, the restoration was all but inevitable. Yet Milton still dared to publish his tract attacking monarchy, proposing a model of a free commonwealth, though he knew the way uh, would be far from easy, uh, and warning with the elegiac voice of a prophet like Jeremiah that his backsliding contemporaries could expect only humiliating degradation and servility under the English thraldom of restored kingship. I mean, I, I really loved, like, he was really putting his mark down with, I think, those, um, you know, prose works there. Um, at, at at key moments, and you know, not, and we'll get into his Paradise Lost and all that stuff, um, Samson Agonistes, and maybe some others um, uh, elsewhere. But uh, that's his prose. He is like it is kind of like it reminds me of like Orwell's Lion in the Unicorn era, um, uh, or, or uh, Milton just flew a little bit higher, right? They actually got the revolution. <laughs> um, they uh, um, Milton was in the the councils with Cromwell and all those folks, basically as like a press secretary sort of thing. Uh, maybe not the press, but like a diplomatic secretary. And and then he got to see it all collapse. And and that's also their later careers is both Milton and Orwell responding to the loss of that brief moment where it looked like liberation was possible. Also, they both had this uh, 
great belief in the English language as like a vehicle of, um, I guess, kind of revolutionary or at least like highly enlightened thinking. And Milton's kind of ambition from a young age was to write a national epic on the level of a Virgil or a Dante, but to do it in English and to kind of make this leap from Latin to English. Um, But it's funny how, I mean, just thinking of Orwell's politics in the English language, how one of his rules is uh, never use a Latinate if you can use a good, solid uh, Anglo-Saxon word. (laughs) Yeah, they definitely (laughs) come on different... One place where Milton and Orwell diverge because Milton loves his Latinates. Yes, in terms of that high and low culture there, I I think opposite ends of the coin um, on that flip. But they're both uh, reluctant artists, which I think is like what what connects them uh, across time is that they're like, they've been thrown into the position of being, of like defending uh, aesthetics, basically. Yeah. Like, I feel like Milton is a pamphleteer who has to write a poetic epic in the same way that like Orwell is, you know, a BBC commentator in the way that where he like, okay, I guess I have to write a novel to defend what I'm saying. And I think that like, I don't know, like Grace, you tell me, but there's something very English about being like, Oh God, do I like, do I have to defend this? And then happen happening to be like the, uh, like the generational defining person of that era, basically someone who's like, oh, I guess I have to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The reluctant genius prodigy. <laughs> um, yeah, I think as well the the fact that uh, I, I believe until fairly recently, and I, I mean before maybe the 20th century, I think Milton was actually seen much more as a political and social figure. And he was seen much more for his kind of polemical prose and his pamphleteering and propaganda. Um, and it's only maybe with the rise of English literature as a discipline in universities like Oxford and Cambridge that he's been kind of subsumed into into letters, into literature. And that's certainly how I first encountered him. And, um, you know, there was some, there was definitely like lectures on his political and historical context, but I encountered him as a poet. And I think the nice thing about going back to the prose is that you get to kind of like you said at the beginning, Matt, see him in his political culture and in his historical kind of context, which is so important. It's important for, I think, like, especially appreciating Paradise Lost. Like, I, I, I have a completely different view of that, knowing the rooms that Milton has been in. When, you, mm-hmm. when he talks about, like, Satan's baleful eyes and, like, they're talking about the failure, like, he's seen failure of a rebellion, <laughs> Uh, like one of the most significant ones in world history, and that that would be stripped of the like teachings on Paradise Lost. I think is like it's very literary hangover that we'd be covering that. Um, so yeah, I think it's like. But, well, sorry, yeah, I think it's like it's frustrating to see someone like uh, Bloom is probably like the. I mean, he just died a few years ago, but he's like the most uh, like prevalent thinker in English literature in America right now. But I think he is famous for saying that like, Oh, maybe like Milton um, was on the side of Satan more than he even knew. And it's like, no, absolutely not. Like 
built in as a writer is someone who likes conflict, who likes the idea that like God and Satan as a, uh, as like two primordial forces are against each other because like that's where truth comes out. And you know that because he saw it firsthand. Like he saw someone who almost saw the end of, uh, uh, monarchical rule and saw a Republic almost being formed and then destroyed. And then someone who was on like, the list of people who should be assassinated and happened to like make his way out of it because he's like a blind old man, despite T.S. Eliot's criticisms. <laughs> and sorry, but had to go into hiding, right? We shouldn't skip over that part. Had his books yeah. burned and had to go into hiding. Yeah. Like someone who has literally like faced the fire of damnation right in front of his face and chose to write about that concept that like both, both sides of this, of this conflict are, uh, on God's side, if that makes sense. Like he saw like conflict as a concept, as something that like where truth comes out of rather than something where it's like truth is on one side and it needs to beat the other. So we can live in like paradise. He saw like conflict as the natural state of man. Uh, And it's like, it's quite fascinating to see a partisan say something like that. And I think that's like something that Orwell would probably say too, if he like had more time to write possibly. So, folks, let's get to uh, the show. Ariel Pagetica, um We're not. I, I don't know. The name is from um, uh, you know, Greek stuff. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I, I didn't take any notes on it, um, basically. But I, I think we can just kind of get with it. It's again. Well, it's, I can if you want. I can do like a really quick. It. Yeah. So it's it's uh, Lycurgus, uh, who's in the fourth century of um, Athenian Greece, and he makes the case that democracy has run amok, that there should be some sort of like totalitarian who should like bring in like the wills of the people, which I think only makes uh, Milton's essay more fascinating Uh, that he's that this quotation of like Kyrgyz is like suggesting that democracy has to be, you know, uh, put into some sort of control. And that also, um, also the Areopagus is like a mount that people speak on. And that is where St. Paul spoke to the Greeks as a newly, a new convert to Christianity, uh, trying to make the case for Christianity in the Greek world that is like uh, highly learned in disputation and uh, the dialectic. Uh, and St. Paul spoke in the language of the Greeks to try to get them to uh, convert to Christianity. He's like using both or Milton is using both uh, pagan and uh, Christian concepts to make this case for that middle ground that we were talking about, like that middle, like unsynthesized spot where um, the truth that can uh, reveal itself basically. Right. Yeah, I like the, I, that uh, idea. I mean, the Areopagus it, in that context sounds like the battlefield of ideas. <laughs> and that, there is like a literal like battlefield of ideas uh, language in here that we'll uh, get to. Um, and uh, and so it is like you, you understand why the uh, AEW would want to po- posture that they are the um, inheritors of this uh, as they like talk about how we should uh, ban communism. And uh, okay, so yeah, here is uh, this. Um, and uh, this is a reading from um, Martin Oldfield. This is on. Uh, this is available on Audible. Areopagitica by John Milton, read to you by Martin Oldfield. Areopagitica, a speech of Mr. John Milton for the liberty of unlicensed printing, 
to the Parliament of England. This is true liberty when free-born men, having to advise the public, may speak free, which he who can and will deserves high praise, who neither can nor will may hold his peace. What can be juster in a state than this? Euripides, Hysetid. They who to states and governors of the Commonwealth direct their speech, High Court of Parliament, or wanting such access in a private condition, write that which they foresee may advance the public good. I suppose them, as at the beginning of no mean endeavour, not a little altered and moved inwardly in their minds. Some with doubt. I just want to say real quick, I love this way to start, like putting yourself in the mind of someone that is just going to start expressing themselves and try to communicate things to people uh, at large and like the different emotions you go through um, before you have to deal with a fucking censor. Out of what will be the success, others with fear of what will be the censure, some with hope, others with confidence of what they have to speak. And me, perhaps, each of these dispositions as the subject was whereon I entered, may have at other times variously affected, and likely might in these foremost expressions now also disclose which of them swayed most, but that the very attempt of this address thus made, and the thought of whom it hath recourse to, hath got the power within me to a passion, far more welcome than incidental to a preface. Which, though I stay not to confess ere any ask, I shall be blameless, if it be no other than the joy and gratulation which it brings to all who wish and promote their country's liberty, whereof this whole discourse proposed will be a certain testimony, if not a trophy. For this is not the liberty which we can hope that no grievance ever should arise in the commonwealth, that let no man in this world expect. But when complaints are freely heard, deeply considered, and speedily reformed, then is the utmost bound of civil liberty attained that wise men look for. To which, if I now manifest by the very sound of this which I shall utter, that we are already in good part arrived, and yet from such a steep disadvantage of tyranny and superstition grounded into our principles as was beyond the manhood of a Roman recovery, it will be attributed first, as is most due, to the strong assistance of God our Deliverer. Next to your faithful guidance and undaunted wisdom, lords and commons of England. Neither is it in. So, yeah, a lot of flavor of uh, flattering of the lords and commons of England uh, and how actually you guys can decide the stuff for yourself. You don't need, you know, censors. Skip a little bit ahead here. Uh, a little bit more of the same um, kind of flattering. Is and signories heard them gladly and with great respect if they had aught in public to admonish the state. Thus did Dion Prusius, a stranger and a private orator, counsel what, the Rhodians. What he's doing here is establishing that previously the Greeks uh, have this history of you know, different people coming forward with uh, changes they think should be made to policy. Uh, people, figures that weren't any more educated than you know the, the people John Milton is trying to reach with this text and that saying you should also be able to uh be imp that empowered against a former edict and i abound with other like examples which to set here would be superfluous but if from the industry of a life wholly dedicated to studious labors and those natural endowments happily not the worst for two and fifty degrees of northern latitude so much must be 
not the worst for the degrees of latitude. It comes from this idea that the more north you are, the dumber you were, um, which uh, it was is a strange sort of um, you know uh, IQ sort of brain fixations go back centuries and have different expressions. He derogated as to count me not equal to any of those who had this privilege. I would obtain to be thought not so inferior. As yourselves are superior to the most of them who received their counsel, and how far you excel them, be assured, lords and commons, there can no greater testimony appear than when your prudent spirit acknowledges and obeys the voice of reason from what quarter soever it be heard speaking, and renders ye as willing to repeal any act of your own setting forth as any set forth by your predecessors. So yeah, basically saying. Uh, other people have admitted they were wrong and uh, gone back on legis- U-turned, as they say in uh, England, uh, on legislation. Uh, you guys should also do that. And uh, here, here he is addressing licensing more explicitly. In either of these particulars, but that other clause of licensing books, which we thought had died with his brother quadragesimal and matrimonial when the prelates expired, I shall now attend with such a homily. I shall lay before ye first the inventors of it to be those whom ye will be loath to own. Next, what is to be thought in general of reading whatever sort the books be? So first, I'm going to historicize it, and then I'm going to say, well, even if um, the history was, regardless of the history, should we be reading bad books or allowing them to be published? And that this order avails nothing to the suppressing of scandalous, seditious, and libelous books, which were mainly intended to be suppressed. Last. That it will be primely to the discouragement of all learning and the stop of truth, not only by disexercising and blunting our abilities in what we know already, but by hindering and cropping the discovery that might be yet further made, both in religious and civil wisdom. I deny not, but that it is of greatest concernment in the Church and Commonwealth to have a vigilant eye how books demean themselves as well as men. And thereafter to confine, imprison, and do sharpest justice on them as malefactors, for books are not absolutely dead things, but do contain a potency of life in them to be as active as that soul was whose progeny they are. Nay, they do preserve as in a vial the purest efficacy and extraction of that living intellect that bred them. I know they are as lively and as vigorously productive as those fabulous dragon's teeth. And being sewn up and down may chance to swing up armed men. Can we stop right there? Actually, yep. I think that that's something worth talking about. That Milton brings up this concept that I don't know. Like it makes him like a bit of a modern man, where he's saying that like when you open a book, that there are truths that are living, that are worth exploring, and I think that like. Honestly, like even people before him, like Erasmus or like other like uh, people deeply interested in like the literary tradition, didn't consider the concept of books as living things that have things to teach you about everyday life. And Milton, I don't know, I guess you could call it love. Like he has a deep love of literature where he opens a book and considers it like uh contemporary he considers it like real life that's like like worth uh considering and worth talking to and i think that that's like that to me like he just jumps out of the 17th century and like comes to me as someone who's living in 
the mid 21st century as someone who's just like a normal person who loves to read and loves to see like concepts uh, be alive, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. yeah he, uh, talked about, he talked about books as his friends, I think in a letter or, or one of the poems, he actually uses that word. And he was also like, just to reference material culture for a second, he was a huge bibliophile and like, built this beautiful collection of books through the course of his life. And when he was living in Hammersmith, which now is a part of central London, but back then was a, a, bit, a little satellite village, he would walk, you know, several miles into central London to buy books. Um, so yeah, he, he had a great love of books, both kind of in these spiritual terms, but also materially too. It's very contrary to a bit of Plato, the Phaedrus, which is a dialogue that's about how uh, sort of textual learning is like is dead because the author can't respond to the um, reader's questions and that sort of stuff. And uh, I, I, I would say I, I, I prefer uh, Milton's perspective on that. And yet, on the other hand, unless wariness be used as good, almost kill a man as kill a good book. Who kills a man kills a reasonable creature, God's image. But he who destroys a good book kills reason itself, kills the image of God, as it were, in the eye. Many a man lives a burden to the earth, but a good book is the precious lifeblood of a master spirit, embalmed and treasured up on purpose to a life beyond life. Tis true, no age can restore a life, whereof perhaps there is no great loss and revolutions of ages do not oft recover the loss of a rejected truth, for the want of which whole nations fare the worse. We should be wary, therefore, what... Per- I mean, that rejected truths for which all nations fare the worse, like, I mean, that is, again, the literary hangover project of, like, all these things foreclosed upon that we don't even have imagination. Like, Joe Biden wanted to be FDR, right? <laughs> and it's like, none of these motherfuckers as the first idea of how to even approximate that. Um, and it's because we, it's because capitalists have controlled the ideas in this country. Uh, yeah. A little, a little bit more here. Persecution we raise against the living labors of public men, how we spill that seasoned life of man preserved and stored up in books. Since we see a kind of homicide may be thus committed, sometimes a martyrdom. And if it extend to the whole impression, a kind of massacre, whereof the execution ends not in the slaying of an elemental life, but strikes at that ethereal and fifth essence, the breath of reason itself, slays an immortality rather than a life. But lest I should be condemned of introducing license, while I oppose licensing, I refuse not the pains to be so much historical as will serve to show what hath been done by ancient and famous commonwealths against this disorder." till the very time that this project of licensing crept out of the Inquisition, was catched up by our prelates, and hath caught some of our presbyters. All right, and I just want to skip a little bit ahead now to where he's discussing, uh, basically like, you know how Reagan, Ronald Reagan's like, the Russians don't have a word for freedom. Uh, Milton sort of does the reverse, where he's like, I hope we never have a word for imprimatur in uh, in English. And uh, here he is, uh, talking about uh, Italian uh, style censorship and like 
the basically like the need to have so many different stamps of approval on your text before it can be uh, seen by anybody. Be to get into their custody, the licensing of that which they say Claudius intended, but went not through with, vouchsafed to see another of their forms, the Roman stamp. Imprimatur, if it seems good to the reverend master of the holy palace, Belcastro, vice regent. Imprimatur, Friar Niccolo Rodolfi, master of the holy palace. Sometimes five imprimaturs are seen together, dialogue-wise, in the piazza of one title page, complimenting and ducking each to other with their shaven reverences. Whether the author, who stands by in perplexity at the foot of his epistle, shall to the press or to the sponge, these are the pretty responsories. These are the dear antiphonies that so bewitched of late our prelates and their chaplains with the goodly echo they made, and besotted us to the gay imitation of a lordly imprimatur, one from Lambeth House, another from the West End of Paul's, so apishly romanizing that the word of command still was set down in Latin. As if the learned grammatical pen that wrote it would cast no ink without Latin, or perhaps as they ought, because no vulgar tongue was worthy to express the pure conceit of an imprimatur, but rather, as I hope, for that I. Just when when he talks about vulgar tongue, there, uh, that's a, important to note in the context of like say Paradise Lost, chosen to be written in English uh, um, instead of say Latin um, in the vulgar tongue, basically. You know, Milton has these sorts of things in his consciousness, um, uh, a sort of democratized awareness and trying to reach people. Our English, the language of men ever famous and foremost in the achievements of liberty, will not easily find servile letters enow to spell such a dictatory presumption in English. And thus, ye have the inventors and the original of book licensing ripped up and drawn as linearly as any pedigree. We have it not. That can be heard of from any ancient state or polity or church, nor by any statute left us by our ancestors, elder or later, nor from the modern custom of any reformed city or church abroad, but from the most anti-Christian council and the most tyrannous inquisition that ever inquired. Till then, books were ever as freely admitted into the world as any other birth. The issue of the brain was no more stifled than the issue of the womb. No envious Juno sat cross-legged over the nativity of any man's intellectual offspring, but if it proved a monster, who denies but that it was justly burnt or sunk into the sea? But that a book in worse condition than a peccant soul should be to stand before a jury ere it be born to the world and undergo yet in darkness the judgment of Radamanth and his colleagues ere it can pass the ferry backward into light was never heard before. Till that mysterious iniquity, provoked and troubled at the first entrance of reformation, sought out new limbos and new hells, wherein they might include our books also within the number of their damned, and this was the rare morsel. I mean, he's really like uh, in the zone um, with his uh, imagery there. But uh, I want to skip a little bit ahead here to uh, talking about a vision. Uh, this is an interesting part. Uh, this rise, Peter, kill and eat is a very interesting part of the Bible that he uh, uh, cites here. But if it be agreed, we shall be tried by visions. There is a vision recorded by Eusebius, far ancienter than this tale of Jerome, to the nun Eustochium, and besides, has nothing of a fever in it. Dionysius Alexandrinus was about the year two forty, a person of great name in the church for piety and learning. 
who had wont to avail himself much against heretics by being conversant in their books, until a certain presbyter laid it scrupulously to his conscience how he durst venture himself among those defiling volumes. The worthy man, loath to give offence, fell into a new debate with himself what was to be thought, when suddenly a vision sent from God, it is his own epistle that so avers it, confirmed him in these words, Read any books whatever come to thy hands, for thou art sufficient both to judge aright and to examine each matter. To this revelation he assented the sooner, as he confesses, because it was answerable to that of the apostle to the Thessalonians. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. And he might have added another remarkable saying of the same author, to the pure, all things are pure, not only meats and drinks, but all kind of knowledge, whether of good or evil. The knowledge cannot defile, nor consequently the books, if the will and conscience be not defiled. For books are as meats and viands are, some of good, some of evil substance. And yet God, in that unapocryphal vision, said without exception, Rise, Peter, kill and eat, leaving the choice to each man's discretion. Wholesome meats to a vitiated stomach differ little or nothing from unwholesome, and best books to a naughty mind are not unappliable to occasions of evil. Bad meats will scarce breed good nourishment in the healthiest concoction, but herein the difference is of bad books, that they, to a discreet and judicious reader, serve in many respects to discover, to confute, to forewarn, and to illustrate. Whereof what better witness can ye expect I should produce than one of your own now sitting in Parliament, the chief of learned men reputed in this land, Mr. Selden, whose volume of natural and national laws proves, not only by great authorities brought together, but by exquisite reasons and theorems, almost mathematically demonstrative, that all opinions, yea, errors, known, read, and collated, are of main service and assistance toward the speedy attainment of what is truest. I conceive, therefore, that when God did enlarge the universal diet of man's body, saving ever the rules of temperance, he then also, as before, left arbitrary the dieting and repasting of our minds, as wherein every mature man might have to exercise his own leading capacity. And then now we're getting to the section where we see good and evil and the uh, necessity of both and the interplay between those two. Uh, and he also talks about cloistered virtue um, in one of the more famous uh, uh, phrases here. Good and evil we know in the field of this world grow up together almost inseparably. And the knowledge of good is so involved and interwoven with the knowledge of evil and in so many cunning resemblances hardly to be discerned that those confused seeds which were imposed upon Psyche as an incessant labour to cull out and sort asunder were not more intermixed. It was from out the rind of one apple tasted that the knowledge of good and evil, as two twins cleaving together, leapt forth into the world. And perhaps this is that doom which Adam fell into of knowing good and evil, that is to say, of knowing good by evil. As therefore the state of man now is, what wisdom can there be to choose, what continence to forbear without the knowledge of evil? He that can apprehend and consider vice with all her baits and seeming pleasures, and yet abstain, and yet distinguish, and yet prefer that which is truly better, he is the true, wayfaring Christian. I cannot praise a fugitive and cloistered virtue, unexercised and unbreathed, 
that never sallies out and sees her adversary, but slinks out of the race where that immortal garland is to be run for, not without dust and heat. Assuredly, we bring not innocence into the world; we bring impurity, much rather. That which purifies us is trial, and trial is by what is contrary. That virtue, therefore, which is but a youngling in the contemplation of evil and knows not the utmost that vice promises to her followers and rejects it, is but a blank virtue, not a pure. Her whiteness is but an excremental whiteness. You know, get into the battlefield of ideas, change my mind, sort of thing. You can't, you can't just sit in your ivory tower and uh, um, be afraid to test your uh, ideas. And I mean, Christopher Hitchens has a book, Letters to the Young Contrarian, where he has. Um, I have this in my Twitter bio, no light without heat. Um, and I think that's exactly kind of what Milton's talking about here. Yeah, that's the, that's probably like the key quotation from the whole text that, you know, it's the most famous quotation that um, I cannot praise a fugitive and cloistered virtue. Um, I think it's interesting. It's obviously like really powerful language and it has kind of immediate, appeal and makes immediate sense to us but if you think about what he's saying about the fall and the apple um and adam knowing good by evil i think it's just very interesting to consider that milton for, for all of his intellectual inquiry and his his challenging of kind of convention he was he was a committed christian and even when he wrote paradise lost he was a committed christian and so as a christian the fall is the fall is a tragedy and yet like he's recouping this idea of the fall as the birth of this like you know eternal duel between good and evil and kind of rehabilitating that as something that will be intellectually fruitful not only intellectually fruitful but like actually the highest kind of expression of our humanity and i just i there's something very moving about that for me that um it is so unresolved and yet it's so productive yeah i watched a great lecture there's a lecture on youtube i think it's through yale courses i've seen these um, yeah with john rogers who's a, a milton scholar and he makes this amazing point that um well it's kind of a cute point that in in this section you can see god as um the licenser you know Ariopagitica is against licensing what god did in genesis was kind of uh peremptorily prohibit the eating of the apple he is acting as like a pre-publication censor um and that milton is kind of grappling with this uh i think that's oh, just yeah. a nice little analog I mean, that's the thing about the, the, what I was going to say is like the fall, it does seem like he welcomed it, like, or he's like, good that it yeah. happened, right? He's yeah. celebrating some aspect of it because we're which, better for it. Exactly. Which is like, that is, yeah, that, that's not how I thought of Adam and Eve uh, growing up. It was like, how, are you fucking serious? We could have just been hanging out in the Garden of Eden and like, I increasingly I view it as like like the the pre like in a video game when you're learning the buttons that's what the garden of eden is um and you're never really into the actual game until you got through that little tutorial section um where you just have to garden the plants and stuff um 
Uh, yeah, here is a little bit more. He talks about the Bible um, and how, how are you going to teach the Bible uh, itself? Um, uh, because, uh, or should we need to censor that? But of the harm that may result hence, three kinds are usually reckoned. First is fear the infection that may spread. But then all human learning and controversy in religious points must remove out of the world, yea, the Bible itself. For that oft times relates blasphemy not nicely. It describes the carnal sense of wicked men not unelegantly. It brings in holiest men passionately, murmuring against providence through all the arguments of Epicurus. In other great disputes, it answers dubiously and darkly to the common reader. And, um, and I'll skip a little bit of here, to, talking about just the practica- a little bit more on the practicality of uh, censorship. And, uh, and, and a, a return to the theme on good from uh, bad us they could transfuse that corruption into the people. Our experience is both late and sad. It is not forgot since the acute and distinct Arminius was perverted merely by the perusing of a nameless discourse written at Delft, which at first he took in hand to confute. Seeing, therefore, that those books and those in great abundance, which are likeliest to taint both life and doctrine, cannot be suppressed without the fall of learning and of all ability in disputation, and that these books of either sort are most and soonest catching to the learned, from whom to the common people whatever is heretical or dissolute may quickly be conveyed, and that evil manners are as perfectly learnt without books a thousand other ways which cannot be stopped, and evil doctrine not with books can propagate, except a teacher guide, which he might also do without writing, and so beyond prohibiting." I am not able to unfold how this cautelous enterprise of licensing can be exempted from the number of vain and impossible attempts. And he who were pleasantly disposed could not well avoid to liken it to the exploit of that gallant man who thought to pound up the crows by shutting his park gate. Besides another inconvenience, if learned men be the first receivers out of books and dispreaders both of vice and error, how shall the licensers themselves be confided in, unless we can confer upon them, or they assume to themselves above all others in the land, the grace of infallibility and uncorruptedness. And again, if it be true that a wise man, like a good refiner, can gather gold out of the drossiest volume, and that a fool will be a fool with the best book, yea, or without book, there is no reason that we should deprive a wise man of any advantage to his wisdom, while we seek to restrain from a fool that which being restrained will be no hindrance to his folly. For if there should be so much exactness always used to keep that from him which is unfit for his reading, we should, in the judgment of Aristotle, not only, but of Solomon and of our Saviour, not vouchsafe him good precepts, and by consequence not willingly admit him to good books, as being certain that a wise man will make better use of an idle pamphlet than a fool will do of sacred scripture. Tis next alleged we must not expose ourselves to temptations without necessity, and next to that, not employ our time in vain things. To both these objections one answer will serve, out of the grounds already laid, that to all men such books are not temptations nor vanities, but useful drugs and materials wherewith to temper and compose effective and strong medicines, which man's life cannot want. The rest, as children and childish men, who have not the art to qualify and prepare these working minerals, well may be exhorted to forbear, but hindered forcibly, they cannot be by all the licensing that sainted inquisition could ever yet contrive. Which is what I promise to deliver next, 
that this order of licensing conduces nothing to the end for which it was framed, and hath almost prevented me by being clear already, while thus much hath been explaining. See the ingenuity of truth, who, when she gets a free and willing hand, opens herself faster than the pace of method and discourse can overtake her. That's also an interesting uh, uh, f- uh, sentence. You know, living. We talk about living in, fa- uh, you know, interesting times and how fast things are moving these days. Obviously, that was a similar sort of thing going on in the Re- uh, English Civil War Revolution. Um, that and like the truth just gets out there. I think. Um, you know, he's seen the, um, the rise in sentiment against monarchy, right? So uh, right now it's as opposed to like the later, uh, around the restoration prose works where it's like, shit, we're going to lose this stuff. You can really feel confident in the truth at this point for, uh, for Milton that it's on his side. I want to skip ahead. There's a part where he talks about why Plato's Commonwealth and the the censorship regime sort of, uh, uh, suggests that there isn't isn't practical and is never tried uh we'll get over we'll skip over that but the basic idea is that like you need to censor everything um and you need to have an entire apparatus and you can't just like do the censorship but um uh, that's a little bit academic uh here he's talking about orality which is interesting because he's he's made concerned or milton is very much as we talk about like pro or not He's not afraid of schism, and he's even compared like the early Christians to what was going on in the English Civil War at that time. And here's a little bit more on that, on our orality, um, particularly versus print. Is the prime service a man would think, wherein this order should give proof of itself? If it were executed, you'll say. But certain, if execution be remiss or blindfold now, and in this particular, what will it be hereafter and in other books? If then the order shall not be vain and frustrate, behold a new labor, lords and commons. Ye must repeal and proscribe all scandalous and unlicensed books already printed and divulged, after ye have drawn them up into a list, that all may know which are condemned and which not, and ordain that no foreign books be delivered out of custody till they have been read over. Yeah, so he does a lot of this on the practicality or, or impracticality of actually censorship, but I like this bit here where, you know, we talked about Milton uh, faced, uh, you know, corporal punishment in school um, and also administered it as a tutor of his nephews um, uh, in the years actually preceding the writing of this. Uh, but here he's talking about like, how are, are we adults <laughs> folks? Like, can't we, can't we like just be adults for a second? Engine. I lastly proceed from the no good it can do to the manifest hurt it causes in being first the greatest discouragement and affront that can be offered to learning and to learned men. It was the complaint and lamentation of prelates upon every least breath of emotion to remove pluralities and distribute more equally church revenues that then all learning would be forever dashed and discouraged. But as for that opinion, I never found cause to think that the tenth part of learning stood or fell with the clergy. Nor could I ever but hold it for a sordid and unworthy speech of any churchman who had a competency left him. If therefore ye be loath to dishearten utterly and discontent, not the mercenary crew of false pretenders to learning, but the free and ingenuous sort of such as evidently were born to study and love learning for itself, not for lucre or any other end but the service of God and of truth, and perhaps that lasting fame and perpetuity of praise which God and good men have consented, 
shall be the reward of those whose published labors advance the good of mankind, then know that, so far to distrust the judgment and the honesty of one who hath but a common repute in learning, and never yet offended, as not to count him fit to print his mind without a tutor and examiner, lest he should drop a schism or something of corruption, is the greatest displeasure and indignity to a free and knowing spirit that can be put upon him. What advantage is it to be a man over it is to be a boy at school, if we have only escaped the ferula to come under the fescue of an imprimatur, if serious and elaborate writings, as if they were no more than the theme of a grammar lad under his pedagogue, must not be uttered without the cursory eyes of a temporizing and extemporizing licenser, he who is not trusted with his- Yeah, uh, so basically, like, stop trying to discipline us, basically, dis- the discipline uh, uh, element of it, which I, I really appreciate in, in Milton. Um, this other part where he talks, I like this bit also, he talks about, let's not make tickets and standards of uh, the truth, which I think we see a little bit of fact-checking fetishization as a way to um, deal with a lot of the discourse, and we can fact-check our way out of you know Trump or even Bernie Sanders um, and that sort of thing. And uh, this part, I think, speaks to that a little bit. Tis books, and to commit such a treacherous fraud against the orphan remainders of worthiest men after death, the more sorrow will belong to that hapless race of men whose misfortune it is to have understanding. Henceforth, let no man care to learn or care to be more than worldly wise, for certainly in higher matters to be ignorant and slothful, to be a common steadfast dunce, will be the only pleasant life and only in request. And it is a particular disesteem of every knowing person alive, a most injurious to the written labors and monuments of the dead, so to me it seems an undervaluing and vilifying of the whole nation. I cannot set so light by all the invention, the art, the wit, the grave and solid judgment which is in England, as that it can be comprehended in any twenty capacities, how good soever, much less that it should not pass except their superintendents be over it, except it be sifted and strained with their strainers, that it should be uncurrent without their manual stamp. Truth and understanding are not such wares as to be monopolized and traded in by tickets and statutes and standards. We must not think to make a staple commodity of all the knowledge in the land, to mark and license it like our broadcloth and our woolpacks. What is it but a servitude like that imposed by the Philistines, not to be allowed the sharpening of our own axes and coulters, but we must repair from all quarters to twenty licensing forges? Had any one written and divulged erroneous things and scandalous to honest life, misusing and forfeiting the esteem had of his reason among men, if after conviction this only censure were adjudged him that he should never henceforth write but what were first examined by an appointed officer, whose hand should be annexed to pass his credit for him that now he might be safely read, it could not be apprehended less than a disgraceful punishment. Whence to include the whole nation, and those that never yet thus offended, under such a diffident and suspectful prohibition, may plainly be understood what a disparagement it is. Yeah, so it goes on a little bit like that. And here's where he talks about Galileo and how everyone's jealous of uh, of of our freedoms and the ones that were given up. Single Enchiridion, without the castle of St. Angelo of an imprimatur. Unless some should persuade ye, lords and commons, that these arguments of learned men's discouragement at this your order are mere flourishes and not real, 
I could recount what I have seen and heard in other countries, where this kind of inquisition tyrannizes, when I have sat among their learned men, for that honour I had, and been counted happy to be born in such a place of philosophic freedom as they supposed England was, while themselves did nothing but bemoan the servile condition into which learning amongst them was brought, that this was it which had damped the glory of Italian wits, that nothing had been there written now these many years but flattery and fustian. There it was that I found and visited the famous Galileo, grown old, a prisoner to the Inquisition, for thinking in astronomy otherwise than the Franciscan and Dominican licenses thought. And though I knew that England then was groaning loudest under the prelatical yoke, nevertheless I took it as a pledge of future happiness that other nations were so persuaded of her liberty. Yet was it beyond my hope that those worthies were then breathing in her air? Who should be her leaders to such a deliverance, as shall never be forgotten by any revolution of time that this world hath to finish? When that was once begun, it was as little in my fear that what words of complaint I heard among learned men of other parts uttered against the Inquisition, the same I should hear by as learned men at home, uttered in time of Parliament against an order of licensing, and that so generally that, when I had disclosed myself a companion of their discontent, I might say, if without envy, that he whom an honest questorship had endeared to the Sicilians was not more by them importuned against Verres than the favourable opinion which I had among many who honour ye, and are known and respected by ye, loaded me with entreaties and persuasions that I would not despair to lay together that which just reason should bring into my mind, toward the removal of an undeserved thraldom upon learning. That this is not therefore the disburdening of a particular fancy, but the common grievance of all those who had prepared their minds and studies above the vulgar pitch to advance truth in others, and from others to entertain it, thus much may satisfy. And in their name I shall, for neither friend nor foe, conceal what the general murmur is, that if it comes to inquisitioning again and licensing, and that we are so timorous of ourselves, and so suspicious of all men, as to fear each book and the shaking of every leaf, before we know what the contents are, if some who but of late were little better than silenced from preaching shall come now to silence us from reading, except what they please, it cannot be guessed what is intended by some, but a second tyranny over learning. Okay, yeah, and uh, so let's skip over a part quick that's uh, where he's talking about you can be a heretic in the truth, uh, and give a little bit of his, uh, basically, like, sects are, are fine. It's fine that people are doing sects. S-E-C-T-S. Where there is much desire to learn, there of necessity will be much arguing, much writing, many opinions, for opinion in good men is but knowledge in the making. Under these fantastic terrors of sect and schism, we wrong the earnest and zealous thirst after knowledge and understanding which God hath stirred up in this city. What some lament of, we rather should rejoice at, should rather praise this pious forwardness among men, to reassume the ill-deputed care of their religion into their own hands again. A little generous prudence, a little forbearance of one another, and some grain of charity might win all these diligences to join and unite in one general and brotherly search after truth. Could we but forego this prelatical tradition of crowding free consciences and Christian liberties into canons and precepts of men? I doubt not, if some great and worthy stranger should come among us, 
wise to discern the mould and temper of a people, and how to govern it, observing the high hopes and aims, the diligent alacrity of our extended thoughts and reasonings in the pursuance of truth and freedom, but that he would cry out as Pyrrhus did, admiring the Roman docility and courage. If such were my epirots, I would not despair the greatest design that could be attempted to make a church or kingdom happy. All right, now here is where we get his、uh, war of ideas、uh, language, and then uh, uh, we got the、uh, one carve out he gets to his、uh, sort of free speech or toleration. And now the time, in special, is my privilege to write and speak what may help to the further discussing of matters in agitation. The temple of Janus, with his two controversial faces, might now not unsignificantly be set open. And though all the winds of doctrine were let loose to play upon the earth, so truth be in the field. We do injuriously by licensing and prohibiting to misdoubt her strength. Let her and falsehood grapple. Whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter, her confuting is the best and surest suppressing. He who hears what praying there is for light and clearer knowledge to be sent down among us. Would think of other matters to be constituted beyond the discipline of Geneva, framed and fabricated already to our hands. Yet when the new light which we beg for shines in upon us, there be who envy and oppose if it comes not first in at their casements. What a collusion is this, when as we are exhorted by the wise man to use diligence, to seek for wisdom as for hidden treasures early and late, that another order shall enjoin us to know nothing but by statute. When a man hath been labouring the hardest labour in the deep mines of knowledge, hath furnished out his findings in all their equipage, drawn forth his. Sorry, I'm just like the deep mines of knowledge.、Um, I'm loving this.、Uh, this is like I, I want to talk to Dave Rubin about this sort of language. Know nothing but by statute. When a man hath been labouring the hardest labour in the deep mines of knowledge, hath furnished out his findings in all their equipage, drawn forth his reasons as it were a battle ranged. Scattered and defeated all objections in his way, calls out his adversary into the plain, offers him the advantage of wind and sun if he please, only that he may try the matter by dint of argument for his opponents then to skulk, to lay ambushments, to keep a narrow bridge of licensing where the challenger should pass, though it be valour enough in soldiership, is but weakness and cowardice in the wars of truth. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that,、um, and I, I want to say just briefly on like the schisms and regards to like modern、um, relevance. Like, let's just use an example like the force the vote stuff.、Um, like, I think there was a lot of、um, media opportunism that made a lot of that stuff bullshit, but I also think there was a little bit too much of、uh, concern about heretics and people doing it wrong. Um, and like desire to impose discipline, that also wasn't super helpful. Like,、uh, like I think they're, they're finding a way to synthesize, you know, people that wanted protests for Medicare for all,、um, who are who have been persuaded by people who are maybe not the most strategic or um, um, honest about what their actual goals are.、Um, is it attention or is it Medicare for all? I think Milton would have been a little bit more,、um, a little bit. I think there's a little bit too much desire for discipline, and、uh, and and people need to let go of that a little bit,、um, maybe. But 
Um, well, I think also Milton, he's writing from this tradition that he was steeped in at Cambridge of disputation, formal disputation among scholars, usually in Latin, um, but now obviously in English in his pamphlets. But that uh, tradition, that discipline presupposes good faith <laughs> yeah. on the part of the disputants. And so it like it it also presupposes this kind of like earnest, honest intellectual engagement with the subject matter, which I think, you know, I'm going to hazard hazard myself and say that twitter.com <laughs> tends to not have the same um, kind of like conditions built into its right. platform. Well, it's funny, like we should talk about the the salting, the Latin disputation, basically, like in this sort of like Eminem eight mile atmosphere where everyone's going crazy. And if you do a good job, is my understanding, you get like the good wine. If you do a bad job, you get a mix with salt. salt. in your drinks, yeah. 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 And if you do a horrible job, you just drink the salt mixture. Um, Yeah, that's just like a modern day hazing. And it still happens at Cambridge. It just happens in slightly different form where, I don't know. And it happens at Yale too and, and Harvard, of course, where you have to, in the olden days, in the 90s, you had to buy a plane ticket to Hong Kong and then set it on fire or something in front of everyone. But slightly oh, wow. different. <laughs> so I mean, that's a hell of a decline. Yeah, to go from disputing in Latin to like just ostentatiously um, burning uh, wealth. Yeah, I feel like the class, the class ramifications of that have become much clearer in the 21st century but yeah certainly in Milton's day it was more like a roasting you know you would roast your classmates or your tutors and um whoever spoke the best latin could drink the good stuff and if you messed up you had to drink a load of salt (laughs) um so there is one uh famous in this is Milton uh does not extend these full free speech rights to papists uh, or the superstitious, which I think some Mason means papists. Um, and uh, here's this section. And we can, you have to actually have to think about power in these situations, talking about speech and free speech outside of um, the context of something like um, an organized a conspiracy against these rights that has existed. It exists in Milton's time. It exists in ours. Uh, is is doing service for those reactionary forces, in my opinion. So here's Milton on uh, the papacy. It is not possible for man to sever the wheat from the tares, the good fish from the other fry. That must be the angel's ministry at the end of mortal things. Yet if all cannot be of one mind, as who looks they should be, this doubtless is more wholesome, more prudent, and more Christian, that many be tolerated rather than all compelled. I mean not tolerated popery and open superstition, which, as it extirpates all religions and civil supremacies, so itself should be extirpate, provided first that all charitable and compassionate means be used to win and regain the weak and the misled. I love that. I mean, I, that's honestly what I say a lot in, in terms of the um, like anti-vax stuff. I'm not interested in like, you know, going at the people who have been misled. And I think you actually need to do a lot to care for those people and unmislead them. Um, but the folks that are doing the misleading, fuck those motherfuckers. Like you, you get nothing from me. 
um, uh, particularly like when it's funded. Um, and uh, like, like for instance, I'm not super interested in what the American Institute for Economic Research has to say about, you know, uh, mask mandates and libertarian think tanks, right? Like, like if you're getting money f- uh, from groups that like have previously had, you say like climate change is um, uh, let, let's, let's take a look at like how quickly we're acting on that and slow our roll a little bit. Like, I'm not interested. If you have something good to say, I'll get it from somewhere else. Uh, and also, uh, Milton points out that a lot of these, uh, and, and Christopher Hill pointed out that a lot of like the papacy, this is all stuff that would have been given an official airing over and over and over again, which is similar to what, like, like I, I don't personally, um, need to see right wing stuff aired like racism, pro racism or pro capitalist stuff. Even if I, I would dictatorship of the proletariat against the capitalist speech rights. I'll, I'll admit that much. It's very interesting because that's the part that really I think people key in on is the the carve out. And I think it's the reasons for it are just so apparent uh, when you look at like, should we give global warming people um, like equal speech rights? It's like, yeah, like you don't throw them in jail, but like you don't give them equal time um, because you have to understand that there's like there's a power imbalance between what's motivating and financing uh, uh, fundamentally these messages. Um, but uh, that is Ariel Pagitica. Do you guys have anything else you want to uh, say as we uh, wrap here? I would say everyone should read it. It'll take you maybe two hours and it's worth it. <clears throat> it's a great read. Um, yeah, you can listen to I- it too. I'm pretty sure there's a YouTube yeah. uh, uh, expert. It is like, it is the, um, uh, it's, it's in our free speech debates. I think it is a worthy uh, to maintain in this canon. Um, I, I think um, I, I love the embrace of conflict and I love the, the final note on like, okay, but the ex- severe power, we need to like start looking into different sort of accommodations and how we confront that. Thank you folks for uh, joining us. Uh, Alex and Grace, I uh, appreciate uh, you both very, very much. I'll uh, let you guys go and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Not sure what we'll do next time. We'll, uh, we'll see. Um, but uh, peace out.